welcome to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Doug Moran, author of If You Will Lead. On behalf of the entire Strategy Driven team, I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast, an interview with Doug Moran, author of If You Will Lead, Enduring Wisdom for 21st Century Leaders. The Strategy Driven Podcast focuses on the tools and techniques executives and managers can use to improve their organization's alignment and accountability to ultimately achieve superior results. These podcasts elaborate on the best practice and warning flag articles found on the Strategy Driven website at www.strategydriven.com. In this special edition podcast, Doug Moran shares with us his insights on the four key questions every leader must answer and the principle behind those questions every leader must embrace in order to be truly effective. So now, Without any further delay, let's get started. We are privileged to be joined by Doug Moran, author of If You Will Lead, Enduring Wisdom for 21st Century Leaders. Throughout his career, Doug has served in leadership roles, including several executive positions with Capital One Financial Services and as Virginia's Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Resources. Doug's firm, If You Will Lead LLC, provides leadership development and executive coaching advisory services. Doug, welcome to the Strategy Driven Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Really thrilled to have you on the show. I have become not only a fan of your book, but I really appreciate your introducing me to Rudyard Kipling's If. I've thoroughly enjoyed that poem, and I keep going back and and reading it over and over. So, Doug, to start out our conversation, now that I've mentioned the If poem, would you share with our audience a little bit of a brief history about the poem and why it's important to leadership? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, if is my favorite poem, um, and you know, it was introduced to me by my mother because it was my grandfather's favorite. Um, the poem comes from uh, Rudyard Kipling, as you mentioned. He he wrote it back in 1895, um, and it was a, a tribute to a gentleman uh, by the name of uh, Leander uh, Jameson. He was a British colonial in South Africa who. His actions actually led to the Second Boer War, and Kipling was very much an imperialist. He, he was very proud of the British Empire, and, and he was uh, honoring somebody who shared his belief that, in the importance of the British Empire. It's interesting because, you know, it was, uh, there's a lot of legends, there's a lot of stories about the poem. It, 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 was, it was a tribute to this gentleman, uh, uh, Dr. Jameson, but it was also, there are rumors and there are stories that it's a tribute uh, to George Washington. And the reason for that uh, supposition is that it, it appears in a book called uh, 
Rewards in Fairies, which was a collection of short stories and poems that Kipling put out in 1910, that, you know, really, uh, the, the, the story that it was tied to in that collection of short stories was a story called Brother Square Toes. And it was, uh, that was a tribute. The book, that story itself was, uh, for George Washington. And it was written about George Washington. And as, you know, cause the poem talks about what it means to be the perfect man, you know, and, and it was a male dominated society. So, uh, Kipling saw that in order to be a, a true uh, man, a true contributor to society in, 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 uh, 19th century, early 20th century, uh, England, it meant to do all the things the poem described. And in, in many ways, although Washington wasn't British, he, you know, Kipling saw him as, uh, a, a personification of, of the perfection he was hoping people could achieve. Uh, the poem was, was actually one of Kipling's favorites in many ways, but it was also one of his least favorite. He used to get accosted regularly by, you know, young men who would, who would, um, were frustrated by the perfection it described and, and, you know, and it was that perfection that he was hoping, uh, to have the people who read it strive for. And that, that's what drove me to write the book is, you know, I, I think in many ways leadership is about a perfection that we will never never achieve and 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 it's a constant growing and and changing process and and so the poem really spoke to me um as a guide to to help people strive for a perfection that was unattainable just as kipling was encouraging young men at the uh, turn of the last century to strive for a perfection that was also unattainable i agree and as you mentioned the poem speaking to you, it really did speak to me as well. And I particularly liked in If You Will Lead how you broke the poem down. Of course, it has 16 leadership principles in it. And those principles you've further segregated into four critical questions that the leader needs to answer for either him or herself. Could you tell us a little bit about those four questions and why they're so important? So, you know, it was interesting. I had had those four questions as a, I'd created that for myself several years ago. I was in a leadership program uh, at a corporation I was working for when I was working for Capital One. It was a great leadership program. One of our assignments was to create uh, a definition for, for what it meant to be a leader. And, and during that exercise, I created this, and, and, and it really resonated with me, and it became uh, an important part of, of how I thought about leadership and, and how I worked on my own development. And so as I was writing the book, the attributes pretty much jumped off the page at me and said, you know, these, you know, when you read, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, it, it says nothing to, you know, it says composure all, it has those words written all over it. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the attributes themselves were fairly straightforward. And my original intent was just to throw those 16 out there and, and let people use them to develop themselves. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the two pieces that I had created for radically different reasons uh, naturally came together. And it, it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was fortunate for me that I was speaking to a group about the F-16 framework um, when it was just 16 attributes that I realized that it was just too much for anybody to digest. And it, what I was doing for my readers or what I was you know, doing to my readers was what I often found frustrating for most of my career, which was 
here's a laundry list of things you need to do to become a better leader. And and so I I, stu- I stepped back about uh, a year, a little over a year before publication, um, about three months before that it was it was due to my publisher and said hey, I'm missing something here. And that's when I brought in those four questions, because the the attributes really did just mesh so perfectly with them. And it was it was very serendipitous. It was it was a, a quite an uh, important discovery for me that that there was this connection between something I had created years ago and and this this framework. And so the questions really speak to uh, what does it mean to be a leader? And and the first one is who am I? You know it, it you know and I think if leaders don't recognize that leadership is, at its core is about making a connection with with those we're leading and helping them know who we are, that if we don't know who we are, they can't know who we are. So the first question is, who am I? The second question is, what do I want? And again, they flow one to the next. Who am I helps inform what I want. Then you can start thinking about what do you do to attract those uh, followers to choose to follow you. And, and the operative word there is choice. People can choose to follow me uh, we're often in professional situations told who will manage us, mm-hmm. but we choose who to follow. So the la- and the last question is, how do you earn and retain that trust every day? And, and again, the, the every day is what's important there. So it's you know those four questions, and they feed one after the other. Who am I? What do I want? How do I attract others to choose to follow me? And then how do I earn and retain their trust every day? Two of those four questions really resonated with me and a lot of my leadership beliefs. And so I'm going to selfishly focus the remainder of our conversation on two of those questions. The first one being is the one of who am I and what do I believe? And I've always felt that if you have that clarity of self or or that self-understanding, that it really makes your decisions, especially in trying times, so much easier to make. But I've also come to believe that it's equally important that the people that you're leading understand what your beliefs and, and value systems are. Now, as, as I've gone through my career and in our pre-show discussion, we, we talked about I went to the Naval Academy and I, I was fortunate to be able to serve on a submarine. I found that those who I've served with and my personal experience as I've uh, gone through life, that sense of who I am and what I believe has been developed and is much easier to recognize today since I've been through some trials than it was early in my career before I had been tested, if you would. Mm -hmm. For those who are assuming their first leadership roles, how can they answer that question of who am I and what do I believe? So it's a, it is a great question. I'm glad you focused on it because it is the, it is the foundation. And when I do work with executives in leadership coaching or if I'm consulting with an organization about their leadership development planning and, and efforts, it is where I spend a, the vast majority of my time is mm-hmm. helping people understand that importance. And, and you, you hit on an important question that, that young people in particular, when they're starting out in, in a, in their, on their leadership journey, they, they, they want things to, they want a, a guide, they want a book, they want somebody to tell them, this is exactly what you need to be doing to, to be successful. And they're, 
the experiences are the key. You know, that, that I, I tell young folks, I, I do a lot of work at James Madison University, my alma mater, and when I talk to people, I tell, you know, when I talk to students, I tell them, hey, look, it's important that you get these experiences. It's, um, you know, those early years in our career are about laying the foundation of figuring out what we like and what we don't like. And, you know, taking risks early so that you can make those mistakes and then not just making a mistake, but learning from the mistake and, and finding those opportunities to dig in and say, what, what happened here? What was it about this situation that uh, revealed who I am. You know, what did it, did it reveal about what I, I believe and value? What did it reveal about what I like and dislike? Those things, those experiences early in life really help us in, you know, help inform those decisions. And, you know, I spend a lot of time talking with colleagues on the topic of, of values and beliefs in, in defining who we are. And there's a big debate among coaches about whether our values and beliefs change over time or whether they're pretty much uh, formed and and you know established early in life and and then uh, stay fairly static, and I'm uh, in the latter camp. I camp. I believe that our values are, are fairly well established, young in a young point or early point in our in our lives. Um, and then what we do is we we experience things that help us see how we are living those values or not living them. Mm-hmm. And we may re- do things that reveal, hey, this is important to me. I just didn't realize it. And so we, we become aware of our values, not necessarily change our values over time. And it's, it's just an interesting uh, challenge that uh, I encourage all executives, but especially young people early in their leadership careers, to seek out the opportunities to try new things and, and, and not, don't be afraid to make some mistakes. And because those mistakes, those, those challenges you talked about, the, you know, the school of hard knocks is where we, we often uh, you know, that's the crucible that, that helps us uh, really understand who we are. I agree. I, I'm also in that second camp where I believe that they're well-formed early on. I guess in my experience, I've also come to find that as I do some retrospective examination, that sometimes I find where in the moment I felt I was living my, my beliefs or practicing my values, that as I examine the actions I took or the decisions I made, I, I come to find that, well, may, maybe I wasn't. And it, it's through that retrospective uh, you know, examination that I learn and I grow, and then in the future I might actually behave a little differently, not because I changed my values, but I rather maybe learned something about how to better apply them. Exactly. And, and it's... You know, it's interesting that one of the things that, that I talk to people about is the idea of authenticity and that being authentic doesn't mean always being the same, always acting the same way. It's, it's being authentically yourself in the different situations you find yourself in. And, and part of knowing who we are is realizing all these different roles we play and how our values show up one way in one situation and another way in another. And again, it's not a matter of changing our values. It's about emphasizing one value in one situation versus another in a, in a, in a completely different situation. Mm-hmm. And what happens sometimes is we find ourselves being genuinely and authentically ourselves, but creating situations where our values do come in conflict. And that's the issue of integrity is where we, we actually can step back and say, what what is it that I'm doing here? Which one of these is more important to me? And, and why am I choosing one over the other? 
And, you know, as, as, I don't know if you're a parent, but, you know, as a father, one of the things that I found challenging was separating, you know, or making those decisions between work and family, that work-life balance. And many of those challenges are, are, are huge because you talk to most parents and they say, well, what's the most important role you play in life? And, and it's that of parent. Yet most professionals will, when faced with an important trade-off, you know, many leaders, many, many executives I work with, will put uh, work before family. And it's, it, it's never as simple as, I always put work before family, or I always put family before work. But, you know, it's, it's how does it play out in, in aggregate? And are we making deliberate and conscious choices, or are we just falling into patterns? And that's where I think your point is well made, that, that when we take a step back and think, you know, and look at situations where we thought we were living our values or living our beliefs, we were, in fact... Uh, acting in, in ways that are just maybe habitual or, or just without without being conscious and, and deliberate. And when we are more deliberate and conscious and aware of the choices, um, that's when our, our values and beliefs can really come through. And and it's it's interesting. I, I often encourage people to, to to look at those decisions that they, they really uh, feel uncomfortable with and, and figure out how do you use those to not not to relive them, not to dwell on them, but how do you learn from them? How do you grow from them so that in the future you don't make similar choices? Doug, I like the example you used about the work-life balance. I, I struggle with this one all the time. And this gets back to something I had mentioned earlier about communicating one's beliefs with others. I find that having communicated my beliefs with my wife, uh, as a for instance, she helps me or helps remind me of some of these values when I'm trying to make these work-life balance decisions. How does a leader communicate to those that are following him or her their beliefs and values in a constructive and understandable manner and then at the same time be open to feedback from those same individuals to help keep them, I guess you could say, on the straight and narrow? Yeah, it's a, it is a great question. It's one that I spend a lot of time talking about uh, with clients, with groups I speak to, because it there is a thin line between sharing our beliefs and values with others so that they can know us and so that we can know them, um, and trying to force our values down somebody's throat. Mm-hmm. And and the first, the former, is very powerful and, and it's extremely important for for us as leaders to do. The latter is is completely inappropriate, and I and so I talk about this one gets me in hot water a lot of times with with uh, human resource groups when I'm speaking to corporations or, or government organizations. The HR people hate this, but I talk about you know there, there is a a norm in our society. This is there are three topics you can't talk about. You can't talk about sex. You can't talk about politics, and you can't talk about religion at work. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. I agree with the first. Yeah, you, you can't talk about sex at work. That's 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 off the table. But uh, this belief that we can't talk about our religious and political beliefs at work is crazy, because mm-hmm. those two things are are in many ways the most um, they they help or they they are a way for us to describe our beliefs in a way that people can understand, and so. Uh, I tell people it's okay. And, and my own experience, when I was uh, my last job at Capital One, I, I had a team of people working for me 
several of whom had been working for me for years. And I tell the story about uh, I was stuck in a bus in Bangalore, India, with with one of my colleagues, one, a guy who had been working for me for six years. And Harsh and I had you know known each other well, and we traveled together, and we were, we were uh, we were and are good friends. Yet. I didn't know that much about him. He didn't know that much about me, and especially in the, in the realm of what we believed, our spiritual beliefs. And we started in this, discuss, this discussion about the commonalities and the differences and distinctions between Hinduism and Christianity. And it was just a fascinating conversation where we were both genuinely curious and interested in, in knowing each other better. And after the conversation, Harsh said to me, he said, look, we've known each other for all these years, yet you've never shared this with me. Why don't you? Why don't you? What what prevents you? And, and we talked about the fact that it was it's a societal norm. And he said, you know, I think that's wrong. And, it, and the more I thought about it, the more I agreed with him. That, that was a wrong, uh, the wrong way to look at things. We were genuinely interested and curious about each other. We, we were not trying to convert each other. We weren't trying to proselytize. But by knowing who I was in, in that realm, in that domain, it helped him understand the values that were informing my decisions at work. And it made him a better, uh, it made our relationship stronger. He could understand if, if I was making a values-based decision that he thought was wrong, he could then use my values to help me understand why he thought my decision was wrong. And it was just, it was a very powerful uh, awakening for me and an awareness for me of, of how you can do this well. And so I tell people all the time, yes, talk about politics, talk about religion with this, in the spirit of here's why I make the decisions I do when they're, when they are values based. You know, these two things don't necessarily influence me when I'm making fact based decisions, but if I'm, if, if I have to make a call about whether something is right or wrong ethically, this is these two things have a big bearing in them. My religion and my political beliefs um, kind of are a manifestation of of these core um, uh, core beliefs that I have. These core uh, values and 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 uh, ethics, and and so they can use that awareness to help me see see. Uh, the value of a decision or, or whether I'm missing a point. And, and it was just, it was a fascinating discovery for me. And, and, I, and I, and I've used it a lot. And, and uh, most of my clients who I talked to about this have shared with me that they also feel that once they've kind of torn down that artificial barrier, that, that the relationships they have at work are much stronger. I agree. I agree. In fact, the relationships I would say that I have not only with coworkers or people that I lead or, that I follow and my clients as well have all strengthened and the, and the trust grown as we've opened up and we've shared our political and religious beliefs. Of course, it's always a two-way street where it needs them to share theirs as well. Mm -hmm. but, uh, no, I, I greatly value that in, in my relationships uh, in, in the workplace besides my personal relationships. And you know, some people will really shy away from it. And mm -hmm. what I, you know, what I always tell people is, if you open up and, and it clearly makes somebody uncomfortable as a leader, um, back away from that and find other ways to share that, you know, core, the essence of who you are. Um, and and you know, most people who, who I've found who are comfortable with that, it's because they're they're uncertain or they they have uh, their own 
challenges that they, they're, they're, they're wrestling with. And, and you don't want to do something that's going to destroy a relationship uh, in, the, in the effort to build a stronger one. Now, Doug, I want to touch on one other point, and, and that's the fourth question in your book and the principle that an individual has to earn the right to lead others. Would you explain uh, that principle and then provide an example or two as to how leaders earn the right to lead? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I, I liken... Uh, a leadership relationship to to a marriage. If you if you think about the early you know years of of a relationship that leads to marriage, um, that's the, the the question around what how do I attract others to choose to follow me? How do you know when I was you know, dating my wife when we when we were uh, how did I attract her to choose to be my mate? And to, you know how did she attract me to choose? You know how do that's that's really kind of the, that first part of the uh, that question three. Question four is in a marriage, it's it's or in a leadership relationship. Either in both those situations, the challenges of keeping you know that relationship strong every day is is so important. And and so I, I believe it is a privilege that we earn. You know that that. that when you establish a relationship to lead, when somebody has chosen to follow you, they have placed in you a, a sacred trust. They've given you their their trust to be a, be their leader, and in exchange, they're going to follow you. And so, what do you do to earn that? You know, how do you make sure that you are worthy of of the trust they've instilled in you? And you talked earlier about the, the, those difficult events, those challenges, those. Events in our lives that cause us, you know, often, you know, they can be painful or difficult, but they also become defining moments for us. Leaders see those moments for what they are and, and figure out how do you, uh, when, when things are falling apart, how do I keep my composure so that I can keep the team that's following me focused on the end game and not distracted by the, the thing that's, that's blowing up. And, Project managers. I, 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 when I was an IT executive, you know, a lot of the, the some of the best leadership moments I ever saw were where projects were in that phase of you know they they were getting close to being done, yet there were so many things that could go wrong. And often my only job in those situations was to be that visible person that says, "I have confidence in you. You're doing the right thing. Keep doing what you're doing." Or you know, stepping in and, and helping restore, uh, if addressing a problem so that they can regain their own confidence in themselves. But, you know, being that visible person, that, that person that throws oil on the water to calm things, the person who uh, has the patience to say, look, we have a plan, we're working the plan, we, you know, it's easy to want to jump to the next step, but that's not going to get us anywhere. It's going to it's gonna create more problems than then it's not. And, you know, that kind of power, that ability to, to see the situation and put it into context, uh, of how a specific problem in the moment relates to the bigger picture is, is so important. I love, you know, the other part of that is, is that enthusiasm, being, uh, being that person who is a cheerleader. And, and the, in my book, I talk about, uh, Thomas Edison and what a, 
phenomenally enthusiastic person he was. And I just, I just love the stories I hear about him being so excited about, uh, you know, the, you know, there's the classic quote of, about the 10,000 failures in creating the, uh, the light bulb. Yeah, you know, it wasn't 10,000 failures. It was 10,000 uh, successes in proving how not to build a light bulb. You know, that, that's a paraphrase of his quote. You know, again, leaders who have the ability to see things for what they are and, and, and stay excited, um, no matter what is just, you know, that's extraordinary. And, you know, the last attribute associated with that is probably the, the biggest key in, in earning that trust. And, and, and that is the uh, attribute of accountability. It is uh, it was the last one in the book because it is so important. That sense of ownership that says to, to the people who are following you, look, I know, you know, I'm in charge and I've got the situation under control, but if things go well, you're going to get the credit. If things go poorly, I'm going to get the blame. And, you know, the leader who does that is so powerful and, and builds such a, 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 a bond that people will, We'll stick with them. And, you know, that we all have had experience working for leaders who, who are the type of leader who earn that trust every day. And, you know, my mentor, a guy named Sanjeev Yajnik, who is the, uh, president of, of Capital One Financial Services Division, he is, uh, the, kind of the epitome of, of that leader that earns the trust every day. He would, you know, he was an attractive person to follow, but the reason why I worked for him as long as I did and, and have stayed close to him is because uh, he saw that his job was to enable us not to make himself look good. You know, in my time in the service, I used to tell folks that le- leadership wasn't born by the insignia you wore either on your collar or your sleeve. And it was uh, what you said the, about the principle of if we're successful, the team gets all the credit, and if we fail, I take the blame. That was probably the, the single most powerful builder of trust that I guess I've experienced and, and have observed. Because all too often, I guess I see in, in the corporate world, and, and even occurred in the service, where the leader was quick to, to have blame, throw folks under the, under the bus, I guess is the common phrase. Yeah, yeah. And, and that just destroyed their leadership. Then, then it became down to the, well, you, you wear a certain rank on your sleeve, so I have to do what I'm told. And, and that's not leadership at all. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it is, you know, it is, there is elements of leadership there. And, you know, I often tell people that you, you do, as a, as a follower, we do have an obligation to, Grant are the people who we are told to follow uh, a certain degree of you know we they are our leaders and and until they lose our confidence the the strength of that relationship you know it, you know is is really defined by by how much they earn it and and I think you know you, somebody's position does give them some uh, of the aspects of leadership but the real true powerful leadership comes when when in their actions and their behaviors every day, um, and, and how they demonstrate that commitment to you know, to themselves, to their values, and to to their organization. Absolutely. And Doug, before we close, you have a website, and it's www.ifyouwillead.net. 
that has a whole host of additional information that our listeners can go and and review and read and benefit from and help them to be more effective leaders. Would you briefly tell us a little bit about your website and the sorts of articles and the like that they can find there? So I, I like to find uh, you know, most of the most of the articles, most of the pieces on my website are directly either either directly related to the book or they are. Um, pretty darn close and what I what I like to do is find examples in uh, in the newspaper in in uh, society of things that are going on that that strike me as being uh, relevant and and will bring some of my ideas to life um, I wrote an article last year during American Idol about a decision that one of the contestants made which really demonstrated a, a um, true Statement of character and, and, and a true, true integrity. You know, this this young man chose to put himself in jeopardy by by living his values, and I just thought it was extraordinary. So I, I like to take real life examples, things that are public, public, and and write about them. And then some of them are just a little closer to home. I see something happening in my children's lives, and I've I've written articles about that. So it's my attempt to. Take my concepts, take the ideas I've written about in my book, and, and bring them to life so that people can get closer to them. And one of the things in my book that that uh, I've gotten extraordinary feedback about is just a it was a last minute idea that my wife came up with, which was the in at the end of each chapter is an everyday example of of leadership mm-hmm. or the leadership attribute that, I, that the chapter is about, and. The reason I I put that in was my wife said to me one day she said you know Doug I'm, I'm concerned that the, the the chapters you know and the stories that they tell are so unattainable how can I aspire to be George Washington or Mother Teresa or Ronald Reagan or John Paul Jones or you know who whomever and you know these these people are so extraordinary and their stories are so unattainable that that they're a little bit daunting and so I decided then and there to to step back and, and figure out how do I make it more attainable. And she, she planted the seed of, of writing about people I knew and the events that I, and these everyday examples. And so those were a lot of fun for people, for me to write. And they've been great for people to, to grab a hold of. And there's something that people can really relate to. And, and, and so that's you know, my, my blog and my, my website, I guess is, it's, it's not much blog. It's more of just, these are more articles about, you know, making these attributes and the framework more attainable for folks. I thoroughly enjoyed the stories in the book, and it did bring it more to life for me. The one that I remember most clearly is actually the one about your daughter and her riding and becoming an equestrian. So I, I greatly appreciated that addition to your book. So you'll have to tell your wife thank you. I will. I have to. <laughs> well, Doug, I want to thank you for not only your time, but for sharing your insights with us on the key principles for becoming an effective leader. I thoroughly enjoyed your book, not just because of the key leadership fundamentals that you presented, but I really felt that you brought them to life and made them real for me through the stories, the historical perspective of the leaders that I knew and had studied in the past, but also for the real-life stories that you incorporated, that, that you just talked about, that brought it life for me as an average person and not, and not a historic figure on a day-to-day basis. 
I sincerely hope that our listeners will pick up a copy of If You Will Lead, but more importantly, that they'll put into practice the 16 leadership principles, that they'll ask themselves the four critical leadership questions, because I know that through doing so, it'll help them become a more effective leader themselves. So thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Strategy Driven Podcast. I would like to personally thank Doug Moran for being with us today and sharing his insights on the principles of effective leadership. As always, we would appreciate receiving your feedback by email at podcast at strategydriven.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider visiting our website at www.strategydriven.com and signing up for our monthly newsletter. You can find more information about Doug Moran and If You Will Lead at www.ifyouwillead.net. Until next time, so long.